Well, please turn with me in your Bibles, if you have one with you, and follow with me. You should never simply accept what a preacher is saying, but should always be asking, is this what the Word of God is saying to us? We read in verse 9 of Acts chapter 1, and when Jesus had said these things as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. Do you ever think about the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ? I'm almost tempted to ask for a show of hands. Did you think about it in the last week, in the last month, in the last year? We think rightly, do we not, about the incarnation of our Lord Jesus Christ, his becoming in flesh for us and for our salvation. We think rightly about his perfect life on this earth. We think rightly, do we not, of the centrality of his cross where he died the just for the unjust to bring us to God. And rightly, do we think of his resurrection from the dead on the third day when he triumphed publicly over sin and death and hell. And we think rightly of his coming again in glory. But what about his ascension? The ascension of Jesus Christ from this earth in the divine cloud to the right hand of the Father was a truth that was so central to the early centuries of the Christian church that they embodied that truth in what we have come to call the Apostles' Creed. He ascended into heaven. It's one of the non-negotiable foundational truths of the Christian faith. He ascended into heaven. And if you know the Westminster Shorter Catechism, question 28, wherein consists Christ's exaltation? The answer is Christ's exaltation consists in his rising from the dead on the third day, in ascending into heaven, in sitting at the right hand of God the Father, and in coming to judge the world at the last day. The exaltation of our Savior Jesus Christ consists in four elements our confessional standards teach us. And one of those four elements is his ascension into heaven where he sits at the right hand of God the Father. So this morning I want us to be thinking about the ascended king, and the Lord willing tonight about the returning king. After his resurrection, Luke tells us the Lord Jesus spent 40 days teaching his disciples about, he tells us, the kingdom of God. It was the most profound theological seminary education that any preacher could ever have received. Forty days 
day after day instruction from the risen Savior concerning the kingdom of God. And then we're told by Luke, he blessed them. He lifted up his hands, blessed them, and a cloud took him out of their sight. Later on in chapter 2 of Acts, after the Holy Spirit has come in power on the church, Peter, as a new man, preaches Jesus Christ to the multitudes gathered for the Feast of Pentecost in Jerusalem. And he says this in verse 33, this Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of the Father, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. Peter preaches to them not only the resurrection of Christ, but his ascension to the right hand of the Father. I want to notice five things with you about the ascension of our Lord Jesus Christ, hopefully to show us that this is a truth we need to ponder This isn't a truth that we should neglect. The early church didn't neglect it. The early creeds of the church declared it. Our own confessional standards placard it. We should be acquainted with it. The first obvious thing to say is that the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ was a miraculous event. His coming into the world was miraculous. And his leaving this world was miraculous. His whole life is bookended by two remarkable events. His virginal conception in the womb of the Virgin Mary. And his ascension into heaven. Taken up in the cloud of the divine presence to the right hand of the Father. And Luke is telling this man, Theophilus, that this didn't happen imaginatively. The disciples were there, the 11 of them, Judas, the betrayer, had gone to his appointed place. The 11 were eyewitnesses of his ascension. The book of Acts is concerned again and again and again to impress on us The historicity, the truth, the facticity of the Christian faith. Again and again and again, Luke will impress upon us as we read through these chapters that the Christian faith isn't a contrived fable. It wasn't a good idea or some kind of philosophy dreamed up on a wet day in Jerusalem by some disappointed men. God acted in history. And just as the coming of his son into this world 
was miraculous. So the leaving of his son from this world was miraculous. Christianity is built on solid, sober fact. Remember how Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, um, that great chapter on the resurrection, impresses this on the church in Corinth. He tells them that Christ was he, that, that he died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. He was buried. He was raised on the third day. He appeared to Peter, then the twelve. He appeared to more than 500 brothers at the one time, most of whom are still alive. He's saying, examine the evidence. But what I want to notice with you this morning is that this miraculous event signals to us the miraculous nature of the Christian faith. One of the great late 19th, early 20th century uh, biblical theologians was a man called Benjamin Breckenridge Warfield, B.B. Warfield. He was professor of didactic and polemic theology at Princeton Seminary in New Jersey. And he was once asked, what is Christianity? I've never forgotten the reply he gave two words. Christianity is unembarrassed supernaturalism. Unembarrassed supernaturalism. You know, some people might say to you, as they've said to me over the past 50 or so years, I've been a believer. How can you believe that? My answer is always, how can you not believe that? You see, the ultimate issue is who is God? Whatever question you're asking, and I'm always being asked, I love being asked questions, my poor family will tell you, and I love asking questions, my poor students will tell you that. But whatever question I'm asked, I almost always say, well, let's talk first about God. Who this God is that is revealed to us in the Bible. Because if God is the God of the Bible, who out of nothing in the space of six days created all things by the word of his power, if he opens up seas for his people to pass through, if he stops the sun in its meridian state, if he causes his own son to join our frail flesh, to his glorious deity in the womb of a virgin. Is anything too hard for the Lord? Christianity is unembarrassed supernaturalism. Faith is not a leap into the dark. Faith is walking into the light. The light of God. And so Jesus ascends. Now, Hear, hear this. Jesus ascends to where he had never left. He never left heaven. But he did leave heaven. You're thinking, is he in his right mind? If you want to explore that truth, it's called the extra Calvinisticum. What it means is this. A human body could not contain the Lord of glory. 
he united himself truly in his person to our frail flesh. But he could not be contained within our frail flesh, even as he even as he sucked milk at his mother's breast to nourish his frail humanity, he was upholding the cosmos by the word of his power. The ascension, I'm almost tempted to spend the rest of the time exploring that with you, but let me hurry on. The ascension is a miraculous event. Secondly, it's a church-transforming event. Back in John's Gospel, chapter 16, Jesus said something very strange to his disciples. He said to them, it will be for your good that I go away. Now, can you imagine how those words must have sounded in their ears? How on earth could it be for our good that you should leave us, Lord? For three years they have walked with him, talked with him sat under his divine ministry and now he's saying it will be for your good that I go. But then he explains himself, you remember, John 16, isn't it? Verses 7 and 8. If I do not go, the Holy Spirit will not come. Now, Pause and understand this. The Holy Spirit has been present from the dawn of creation. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void. Darkness was on the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Think of Psalm 51. David prays in the wake of his tragic sin against Bathsheba and Uriah. He says, Lord, take not your Holy Spirit from me. The Holy Spirit was active in creation, active in redemption. Every believer from Adam onwards was indwelled by the Holy Spirit, but in a new way. As the Spirit of the now risen, ascended, regnant, cosmically triumphant Jesus Christ, the Spirit would come as the Spirit of Christ in a new way to indwell God's people. You see, Jesus' body was not ubiquitous. The incarnation limited Jesus. He could only be in one place at one time. If he was in Galilee, he couldn't be in Jerusalem. His body was not ubiquitous. It wasn't everywhere. But the Spirit of Jesus would come, and he would be everywhere. I remember, and I'm sure Joan will remember, at family worship one day, the children were small. Don't think Sarah was actually born yet. Um, We were praying for various missionaries because the church is a missionary church. The tailors in Japan, I remember, Dorothy Nisbet in Thailand, and the Paytons in France. And Jonathan, who was five, said, but Daddy... How, how can God be in all these places at the same time? Now, I was about to say, well, you know, Jonathan, God is different from us. 
when David, who was seven, looked at Jonathan and said, Jonathan, God's omnipresent. And I thought, well, okay, God, God is omnipresent. The Spirit of Jesus comes to bring the presence of the risen, cosmically exalted Jesus Christ into the life of his church. And that's what so dramatically transformed everything. Remember later on in in John 16, Jesus says, it will be for your good that I go away. If I do not go away, the Spirit will not come. But when he comes, he will convict the world or convince the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. And then at Pentecost, 10 days after the ascension, the Spirit of God comes, Acts chapter 2, and Peter, who had denied Christ, deserted Christ, cursed, the Savior, he stands up and he preaches to thousands of people boldly, unashamedly, powerfully. What happened? The Holy Spirit happened. The Spirit of Christ had come. The ascension is a church transforming event. The Lord Jesus Christ, the embodied God-man, is at the right hand of the Father. And he sent his Holy Spirit to energize the church, quicken the church, empower the church, embolden the church. We should be thinking far more about the Holy Spirit than we do. Because the Holy Spirit's great mission and ministry is to do what? We should all say it in chorus, shouldn't we? When he comes, he will bring glory to me. The Spirit, where the Spirit is most present, Jesus Christ will be most exalted. But then thirdly, the ascension was a ministry equipping event Not just a church transforming event, but a ministry equipping event. That's why we sung those verses in Psalm 68. When he ascended. When he ascended. And Paul takes those words from Psalm 68, you'll remember. And in Ephesians 4, he tells the church, When he ascended on high, He led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. The Holy Spirit has come not just to empower the church, but to gift the church. He comes to equip the church. And so he gave Christ, the ascended Christ who is above all the heavens. He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, the teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry. The Holy Spirit equips every believer to be what God has called them to be. Whether they're a butcher, a baker, a plumber, whether they're um, delivering lambs this morning as Thomas is, or, or whether they're preaching, The Spirit comes to equip every believer, but in a particular way, he comes to equip those men set apart to equip the saints for the work of ministry. Who are the ministers in this congregation? 
you and 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 you. If you're a Christian, you're a minister, that is a servant of God. You are there to be at the front line as the evangelists bearing witness to Jesus Christ. My responsibility, Malcolm, Malcolm's responsibility, as my grandchildren tell me, not Malcolm, Papa, it's Malcolm. Our responsibility is to equip the saints for the work of ministry. This, the church isn't a bus where we all clamber on and the minister's at the front driving. The church is an orchestra. And the orchestra has a leader that, who, is, who is there to enable the string section to come in at the right time and, and the brass section and the wind section so that each comes to play its part. The Holy Spirit has come to equip us all to be Christ's ministers in this world to be his witnesses but particularly he comes to equip pastors and teachers so that through their ministry they're preaching they're teaching they're praying they're pastoring they're visiting they equip the saints to be the shock troops of the gospel in the world so the ascension is a miraculous event, a church transforming event, a ministry equipping event. And then fourthly, it's a hope-filled, reassuring event. As the disciples are looking up um, into, the, into the skies, marveling, bewildered, no doubt, at what they were seeing, an angel of the Lord said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven this Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way you saw him go into heaven. The ascension is a hope-filled, reassuring event. This same Jesus, who has gone, is coming back. We're going to be thinking about that this evening, so lovely to see each and every one of you back tonight as we think about the returning king. But what is the Lord Jesus Christ doing in his ascended glory? I, I do sometimes think we have this notion that he's, he's uh, on a bed of ease, just receiving and enjoying the accolades and the praises of the redeemed in heaven and of the unfallen angels. No. What does the Bible tell us? If you had to choose one text that would capture what the Lord Jesus Christ has been doing from the moment of his ascension to the moment of his return. What would it be? Just think for a moment. What would the one text be? Well, you've got a choice of two, haven't you? One in Hebrews and one in Romans. Hebrews 7.25. He always lives to make intercession for us. What is our Lord Jesus Christ doing in his ascended glory? He is pleading our cause at the right hand of his Father. He is watching over, caring for, providing for, protecting, loving. He ever lives. And what is he praying? 
What is he praying for you, for me? If, 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 if you are a Christian at all, what is Jesus praying for you? He's praying that you'll be kept. Look at John 17. Wait time, look at John 17. He's praying that you'll be kept from the evil one. He's praying that you'll be sanctified, that your life will be more and more conformed to that of your Savior. He's praying that you will love the Father better and better and better. He's not idle in his ascended glory. He is ever living to make intercession for us. I don't think actually that means he is on bended knee pleading our cause before the Father. I think Calvin and John Owen are absolutely right when they say the intercession of Christ is his very presence as the redeemer of God's people at the right hand of his heavenly father. As the father beholds the, the marks, the rich wounds yet visible above, as he beholds the marks in his hands, his feet and side, he is the one marred humanity in heaven's glory. And as the father beholds the marks of our redemption and of our glorification, he always, always does what will best and most fittedly suit the good of those for whom the Savior laid down his life. But then finally this, the ascension of Christ was a cosmic enthroning event. The ascension was the triumphal coronation of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is what Paul is referring to, isn't he, in Philippians 2. God has given him the name which is above every other name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The resurrection placarded Jesus' triumph over sin and death and Satan. His ascension began the unveiling of his glory. A glory that had been hidden since the incarnation. And Paul says to him, to this ascended one, every knee will bow. Every knee will bow. Now you know what Paul is not teaching. Read the passage. He's not teaching that everyone's going to be saved. But he is saying that every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, willingly or unwillingly. In the darkness and torment of hell, everyone knows that Jesus Christ is Lord. Every knee will bow. And so the, the, the question that really confronts us all is simply... Will I bow willingly, gladly, joyfully, thankfully, delightfully to confess not only that he is Lord, 
but that he's my Lord? Or will I be constrained by the divine majesty to acknowledge the truth that runs through the cosmos? Christus Victor, Christus Victor, Jesus Christ, as Lord, has triumphed. The ascension of Christ. So, homework this afternoon. Memorize the answer to Westminster Shorter Catechism 28. That would be a good way to redeem the time because the days are evil. May God bless to us his word this morning. One of the psalms that speak 